broadcast for an incoming transmission from the library. It appears that Blue Stocking has been able to make contact, and the Steampunk Dollhouse will begin transmitting momentarily. Stay tuned for more news from these intrepid defenders of all our literary freedoms. Steampunk Dollhouse. My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your librarian and host for the next hour. If you are a returning listener, you have my eternal thanks for continuing to tune in. If this is your first time in the Dollhouse, please come in, have a seat, settle in. Uh, But first, I do want to make sure that you're aware that this show is, by necessity, going to be chock-a-block with spoilers, as everyone is. Uh, So if that's going to be an issue, then you should probably turn back Read the books before you continue. It's okay. I will still be here when you get back. Now, a couple things to talk about. It was a hell of a week in library land, but I did have the great pleasure of having baby stocking here in the bunker with us for about a week. So that did help to alleviate some of the horribleness. Um, Now, she is currently being escorted home by Mr. Stocking. And in case you missed the news, there's a pretty gnarly storm that's uh, whipping all over Texas coast right now. It's starting to settle down, but it's still still pretty bad. Um, now, they're not driving down that far, but they will be going into the outer edges of it. So if I could just have all of you throw a white light around them, it would greatly be appreciated. And now, on to the fucked upness of this week. Um, if you follow me on, or the show, on Facebook or Twitter... Then you might already be aware of what I had to say about the um, appalling white supremacist vandalism that took place on the campus of Texas Women's University uh, about a week ago. But I'm going to break uh, my hearty flimsy fourth wall here for a minute so that I can address this. Uh, late on the 18th or early on the 19th, uh, a new local group of psychopaths uh, decided to paper my campus and the campus of UNT with some absolutely atrocious propaganda um, from a group of really horrible people who then went on Twitter to brag about it. They were very proud. Um, Now, all of this was done under cover of darkness. There's no names on the Twitter account. Um, I've looked at their website, and it's registered through this shady off-brand domain registrar uh, that provides who is masking. And the website was just registered in July. Um, So they're very proud, but not proud enough to uh, spread this shit in the middle of the day. So, you know, take that for what you will. Now, what I and uh, others have noticed as we've looked at this horrible shit is that the organization, they they scream about, um, and, you know, they, they are against Marxism, they're against this and they're against that. But the propaganda... The, the shit that they plastered all over my fucking school looks like early Marxist and communist propaganda. It's crazy. Um, it's now, whatever else is going on in their group, they're very explicit about being only for white, straight Christians. Um, it's just... 
And these weren't loose papers either. I mean, this shit was plastered up and had to be scraped off. That's how bad it was. Um, now, if you'll notice, I'm not telling you who they are. I'm not saying their names. I'm not driving any more traffic to their repulsive website or their obnoxious Twitter feed. And honestly, I don't need them coming after me because they know where I go. To, everybody knows where I go to school. I haven't made it a secret. Um, I haven't really you know, maintained a secret identity here. Um, and I don't need them coming after me. I have enough shit going on in my life. But part of why this makes me so angry, um, for those that don't know, and I actually had someone angrily uh, <laughs> come after me on Twitter one time about my school, and I had to inform her that I already knew it and that they do tell us. Um, the land around my school and a lot of the land that it's built on, it was quote-unquote acquired um, back in the 20s. Back at the turn of the century, around the 20s, there was a very thriving black community in Denton. Um, it was freed slaves and um, relatives and um, children and grandchildren of freed slaves. It was called Quakertown. It was a very bustling little community, and it was located very near the borders of the school, which at the time um, had a different name. I think it was a state industrial college for girls. Um but the school enrollment was starting to grow and starting to grow, and, and more and more girls were coming. Um, now, at that time, you know, patriarchy, whatever, girls couldn't live off campus unless their parents lived here in town and they lived with their parents, even seniors. Like, you couldn't live off campus. You had to be in the dorms or with your parents. More dorms were being put in, um, but the problem was that these young white girls were going to be in close proximity to black men of any age, um, and literally, they said there was a, a concern for the sanctity of the homes and purity of the young girls. So the land was obtained through shady dealings, through coercion, um, eminent domain. A park was built on the school border, which has since been renamed Quakertown. Uh, so that's how TWU uh, got its land early on. Um, and like I said, it's it's not something that's printed in the brochures, but they don't keep it a secret. Everyone knows the story of how TWU got the land. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is because nowadays, if you look around the campus of the school, and this is something that I noticed when I started going there, and it was, um, it was I thought it was lovely. It has a, a pretty, I think, and I could be wrong. Um, it has, I think, it has a pretty wonderful spread of some really unique and amazing women and men um, from many different backgrounds. The school is still 90% female, uh, 10% male. Now, in 2016, the total enrollment was 41% uh, white, 29% Hispanic, about 19% African American, 9% Asian, and then some others that I couldn't read on the chart because my eyes are really bad. Um, while the more even spread, of course, would always be better, um, what I noticed about the campus, and I still notice, is that there are so many voices and so many stories, um, so many ideas and opinions coming from all over all the time. And so, because there, and we have a lot of international students, um, and so, you know, we have beautiful young women in hijabs, we have everything. And so for these beautiful young men and women to show up, you know, to campus and school starting. Actually, everybody was moving in last week, which I'm sure is why they did that with the stickers. Um, for them to show up to get an education and to see that, it's, it's, it's horrifying. 
I can't imagine what, I mean, I can't imagine what it's like. I know that, I know it's horrifying and scary for me, and, you know, I'm just a middle-class white lady. I cannot imagine what it's like for these young, young kids of color who have to deal with this. It's terrible. And my school isn't perfect. I mean, it has issues like any other, but for me, it's home, and for so many people that I love and that I care about, it's home, and it's, it sucks. Um, now I'm going to keep that (laughs) as the only beef that I'm going to go into, um, for this last week as I'm recording this on Saturday morning, um, the 26th, I'm still digesting the rest of the shit that happened yesterday with the additional move on the transgender military ban and, oh, the entirely unsurprising pardon of that fucking racist dickbag sheriff that, you know, that they said he wasn't going to do and he did it anyway. Shocking. Um, I'm going to leave all that aside uh, for the moment. Um, as usual, when school is starting, I get sick, so I'm not feeling so hot right now. I'm crabby and I'm a little cranky, and we have quite a bit to discuss, so let's talk. This week's episode of the Steampunk Dollhouse is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, I am recommending Ink and Bone, book one of the Great Library series by Rachel Kane. Narrated in a very exciting and dashing manner by Julian Effer, this audiobook will keep you on the edge of your seat all the way to the end of the ride. So visit audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download Ink and Bone or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. Alrighty, kiddos, let's get started. Um, what I want to do before we go into the actual books themselves, I'm going to go over a little bit of history about a few things um, that are important, vitally important to the books, um, just to set the stage for you. Uh, the first thing, most important, is the library itself, um, the Library of Alexandria, the actual historical Library of Alexandria. Um, For those that don't know, because not everybody is familiar with the history of the library, um, the Library of Alexandria, it was, uh, at the time that it was um, in existence, it was one of the most significant and one of the largest libraries in the world. Now, it was dedicated to the Nine Muses, um, which actually the TWU Library is also uh, dedicated that way. Uh, It was dedicated to the Muses, and it rose up under the Ptolemaic Dynasty, and it was the place for, sh- for scholarship um, in that world from the 3rd century until the Roman conquest in about 30 BC. Um, it had massive collections of works. There were gardens. There were lecture halls. There were meeting rooms. There was just, oh, it was supposed to be absolutely incredible. Now, the library itself was... Um, involved in a larger complex, it was part of a larger complex, the, the, the museum, and so many famous people of the time uh, went there. Now, the library itself, um, uh, Ptolemy Soter, uh, the first created it. He was um, a Macedonian general, Macedonian Greek general, and uh, he was the, one of the successors of Alexander the Great. Um, now, the books that were there, they were kept in, they, most of them were papyrus scrolls. I mean, this was, you know, in the way back when. Um, nobody knows at this point anymore how many there were. Uh, estimates can range from 40,000 to 400,000. 
Now, everyone know, or most everybody knows the story as far as how uh, the library was lost, that it, it burned down, um, and that's where you know, we lost so much. We lost all these scrolls. We lost these books. And it kind of became this, this symbol for loss, for a great loss of knowledge. Um, I know that it's, it's become a, a popular metaphor this year, especially. Um, but what they're finding, what they're, they're learning as they study it more in the, the area where it was supposed to have been, is that there were probably actually quite a few fires, which wouldn't be surprising in a dry desert climate with a lot of papyrus scrolls crammed together and, you know, and you're using oil lamps for light. Um, so the actual final nail in the coffin, um, the, the, what's the most, the most common um, assumption is that it was Caesar's army um, who set it on fire, whether on purpose or on accident. But there was also an attack by Aurelian um, in the 270s. Now, after the library itself was destroyed... Um, there was another section of it, uh, a daughter library called the Serapium, that was in another part of the city, and um, that was used until that was destroyed by the uh, Coptic Pope Theophilus in 391. Again, not known how much was lost, um, but it's believed that the final, 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 um, the Muslim conquest um, of AD 642 was the last bits of it. Um, the library was said to be amazing, though. I mean, it was just, it was supposed to be absolutely incredible. And one of my favorite stories, and I don't know if it's true or not, I like to think it's true. One of the stories that I've heard is that um, the reason the library had so much, it had so many books, is because everybody coming into the city, however, you know, if they came in by foot or by water, um, everyone was stopped, they were searched. Any books, uh, papyri, any any written material that they had on them was taken away. It was confiscated. A fair copy was made. The copy was given back to the person, and the original was kept by the library. Uh, I like to think that's that's true. I don't know. I, I don't know. I think it's. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I like that. I probably shouldn't. Um, but I mean, at least they made a copy. They made a good copy. A clean copy. They gave it back, but they wanted the originals. And, I mean, the library was massive, so there's no way that they could have acquired that much stuff without some shady dealings. But um, that will actually also become an issue um, in the books that we're about to go into. So that's the library. And because I love you guys and I'm so dedicated to this show, I listen to the most boring podcast. I don't want to say that. It was very dry. Um, <laughs> it's one of the BBC In Our Time history episodes from March 12, 2009, about the Library of Alexandria, but it's for very, very dry scholars. Um, not very long. I think it's like an hour. But, you know, if you want a little more information from actual experts and not my cop from Wikipedia summary, um, go listen to the podcast. The link for the podcast or for the show is in the notes, and the link said the time is on there, so you can search through and find it. Now, the next thing that I want to cover real quick is one of the biggest weapons that is used in the book and the nastiest, which is Greek fire. Um, if you don't know what Greek fire is, Greek fire uh, was a really, really gnarly um, incendiary weapon 
that was supposed to have been used by the Byzantine Empire um, somewhere around 600, 672. Um, it was mostly, what they think is mostly used in naval battles, is, um, and the reason being is that it kept burning. It was like a gasoline fire and that it would keep burning on the water. Now, it was, like I said, it was supposed to be really nasty. Uh, it provided a great advantage, and it was supposed to be responsible for a lot of the, the Byzantine victories. Um, now... It was greatly, greatly feared, but the thing was that nobody outside of the Byzantine Emperor, Empire actually knew how it was constructed. Um, it was a one of those secrets that I don't know how they managed to keep it. I'm assuming on pain of death, but it was kept secret. Um, it was called sea fire, Roman fire, uh, war fire, liquid fire, and my favorite sticky fire. So if that tells you how nasty this stuff is, it was sticky fire. <laughs> and it was gross. Now, uh, like I said, the, the components are unknown. The various ideas thrown around are combinations of um, naphtha, quicklime, calcium, phosphide, sulfur, um, niter, and then pine resin, which is... Um, I think where the sticky fire came from, because if you're familiar with pine resin or pines, if you've ever stood too close to a pine tree uh, or touched it and you get that sticky shit all over your hand that doesn't want to come off, that would have been gnarly when it was burning and landed on your skin because it's not something... Water doesn't put it out. <laughs> water doesn't get rid of it. Um, there's, um, I think there had to have been special ways to put it out because water's not going to do the trick. It's going to make it worse. Um, and actually... The If you're a Game of Thrones fan, and I think most everybody in the world is at this point, um, this is the basis for the wildfire that blew apart the Sept of Baelor. That's Greek fire, basically. Um, and there's a podcast, another podcast, um, Stuff... Let's see... Stuff to Blow Your Mind was this one. Um, and it's actually, this was a recent episode. They just had this episode, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. They did an episode on Greek fire, and they actually called it Jellied Flaming Death is the best description for it. So, uh, again, link is in the show notes for the episode. It was a really good episode. And what I also did, there's also a link in the show notes for a YouTube video that shows a simulation, uh, a, a concoction that's supposed to um, be similar to Greek fire and what it does. Uh, it's from a history channel show called Ancient Death Machines. It was Ancient Machines. I think it was Ancient Death Machines, but you can find that in the show notes. Um, so that is, plays a big part in these books. Um, really, really awful stuff. Now, the other thing that I wanted to cover real quick is um, I didn't, and I, I meant to cover this when I went over the, um, the Alchemy Wars trilogy, the Intrigillus books, because uh, it's mentioned in that too, but this book also deals with al- these books deal with alchemy as well, and it's the subject. It's this the stuff called quintessence. Uh, I don't think I discussed it in the Alchemy Wars books, but it was actually a really big part of, um, especially the last book. It's a substance that was very important and was supposed to be protected at all costs by the. Uh, it was the one thing that would override every ar- every other um, Metagash, and it plays a big part in this one too. Now, uh, what quintessence actually is or was supposed to be, um, it's the, the fifth element, um, that it was created, or the name was, um, coined by medieval alchemists. Um, it's thought to make up the heavenly bodies. Um, it's, 
there's very little contestants within the terrestrial sphere, um, so Earth could be affected by what takes place within the heavenly bodies. It's a theory that was developed in the 14th century. Um, the use of quintessence was very popular in medieval alchemy. And if you're familiar with steampunk novels, I'm sure you are, you're familiar with steampunk novels and um, tropes and plot points and ether, aether, whatever you want to call it, A-E-T-H-E-R, uh, you see it all over the place. That's quintessence. It's the same thing. Um, so it's supposed to have a pure and heavenly quality. Um, it was supposed to be, they sought to isolate it for um, medicines and elixirs. And there was actually a book of quintessence that was done, written in the 15th century. And it was used as a medicine for many of man's illnesses. Um, so, And it was also um, thought to have been used to create the Philosopher's Stone. So that's quintessence. It's what the alchemists used in the Alchemy Wars books, and it's what the obscurists use in these books. Um, it's the sum of everything. It's, it's, it's the sum of the magic. So that's the Library of Alexandria, Greek Fire, and Quintessence. <laughs> so let's get into the books themselves. Um, three books. They are by author Rachel Kane. The Great Library series, and actually I was excited to find out that there's another one coming out, but we're just talking about these three for now. Uh, Ink and Bone, Paper and Fire, and Ash and Quill. Um, when you first start reading the book, you don't know. The time isn't given yet. Um, there's different, what she calls ephemera, little notes that are peppered throughout uh, historical moments. But it's a little bit, you know, into the book before you find out it's actually taking place in 2025. Um and what it is is that the library never fell. The library at Alexandria never fell, and in fact, they broke away from um, from Pharaoh, from uh, Ptolemy. They broke away. They declared their independence. They basically took over the world. And they became the guiding hand over the world. And so, this is a world where knowledge is everything. It's the most important thing. Um, but interestingly, nobody, original books, actual books, nobody has those unless they are, you know, smugglers or they have a special license. Everybody basically has what are called, they're called codexes. They're basically iPads. Um, and from the codex, you can access everything, well, supposedly everything that the library has. You can access it. You can see all the knowledge in the world. But again, as with any overriding organization, it's probably not good. Um, and what you start to find out little by little, the reason that there are no printed books, there's handwritten books, the original handwritten books, but there are no printed books. And the reason there are no printed books is because every time a printing press is invented, the person that invents it is tossed into a dungeon or outright executed. The press is smashed. The instructions are interdicted to the black art because, of course, there's a black archive. They're interdicted to the black archive, never to be seen again. The heresy is stamped out. And a hundred years later, somebody else comes up with it again. Um, because human human minds are ever inventive. Um, but the library wants to keep a lock on how people access knowledge, what they access. So in this world, in the 2020s to the 2030s, um, England... And uh, what's interesting is that uh, Rachel Kane has kind of racial and religious... Um, Wars, um, differences, divisions 
don't play a part in this so much. This is all about knowledge, who has it, who wants it, and uh, what's being held, kept away from everyone. Um, so religion and race don't really play... It. I mean, there's, there is actually quite a, a variation on the people because the library brings in everyone. The library doesn't discriminate. It brings in anyone and everyone, whoever wants to... Who wants to... I mean, you have to take a test and you have to be approved, but the library doesn't discriminate. Uh, it brings in people from all over the world. So when she mentions different characters, they're mentioned... Their race or their you know religion is mentioned... But in a way that it's, this is just the way it is. Not that they are different because of it. Um, it's just a part of who they are and moving on. Um, like I said, the, the, the big um, issue in these books is the control of knowledge. So in this world of the 2020s to the 2030s, England and Wales have been locked in a very long and bitter war. Um, there is a group called Burners. And as you might imagine, uh, Burners burn books. Uh, the reason that they do it, I know it's, it's a terrible thing to say, but they don't burn books because they don't like books. They do it as a matter of protest uh, to make a point, a very, very striking point uh, about the control of the library over everyone's lives. Um, so they do burn books and they use Greek fire to do it. And very often they will immolate themselves in the process, um, usually on purpose. Like I said, to, to make a very... Um, very striking point about what's happening. Uh, now, similarly to, again, the Alchemy Wars trilogy, um, France does have, uh, still have a monarchy, but again, we have a queen this time in exile, so we've got some issues in France. I think Paris is also surrounded and under siege, if I remember correctly. There's so much that happens in these books. Um, so good. So, We've got this great force for the preservation of knowledge. Um, now, to give you some quick summaries of the books themselves, um, the first book, Ink and Bone, we are... Now, the books are told from the perspective, the third-person perspective of the character Jess Brightwell. He is uh, a kid from London. Um, he is a smuggler's son. And he's a twin. He's got a twin brother named Brendan. Uh, he had an older brother named Liam, but Liam was caught um, running books through London and hanged, and his family let him be hanged. Liam died without giving up his family. Uh, Jess's father is just a terrible, terrible person. He is just an asshole. Um, the business above all else. His mother is really just kind of vacant, and, you know, she's there, but she's not... Uh, She's not a bad mother. She just not really all that interested in her children's lives, you know, and she lets these things happen. So uh, what they do, the smugglers, they, they wear what's called a smuggler's harness where the books are strapped to their chest under their clothes, and they literally run <laughs> through London with what are called cutters running beside them. Other kids, uh, younger, some older, who are diversionary tactics, so when people see them coming, everybody knows that there's a runner afoot, and then the uh, the library um, forces are called the High Garda, and the High Garda start going after them. The cutters are there to serve as decoys and diversions, and hopefully the runner can get through. So when the book starts, when we meet Jess, Jess is running uh, to deliver a book to what turns out to be someone called an ink licker, uh, and the ink lickers are kind of the, the perverts of this world. Uh, they have so much money that they can afford to not only buy an illegal book, you know, an original copy, a handwritten 
sometimes very ancient copy of a book, but then they sit there and they eat it just because they can. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really gross and it just makes you feel dirty when you read about it. So anyway, Jess, that's how Jess grows up, running books. Um, Jess is not like his brother. He's not like his family. Jess loves, his father loves books too, but his father, like I said, is a smuggler above all else and an asshole. And it's, you know, it's, it's the business and the, and the money before anything. And his brother is very similar, but Jess just loves books. Um, so Jess finds out that his father has bought him, uh, a place into a place in the library testing because you have to test to, uh, go work for the library. So Jess takes the test, he passes, and it's with the, with the the knowledge that his family expects him to spy for them. Um, but he passes the test, he becomes um, what are called postulants. Uh, they're scholars-to-be, if they can pass. And what it is, we have this huge class of postulants that are assigned to a scholar. Everyone is taken to Alexandria, that's where... Obviously, the main center is going to be. Everyone is transported to Alexandria, and they're given over into the care of scholar Christopher Wolfe, who is amazing. Um, and not all of them are going to make it. At the end, there's going to be six spots left, which means people are going to have to go. It's uh, it's it's pretty tough. It's pretty cutthroat. Um, but as, as we go on through the story, we're going to find out that there's a lot more going on, like uh, Christopher Wolfe. Um, well, he's, remember when I mentioned the, uh, the, the printing press inventors who are taken and tossed into oubliettes and their presses are smashed? We find out later that Wolf invented a press at one point. Um, the only thing that saved him was his mother's high position, but we'll get to that in a second. So Jess uh, goes to Alexandria with all the other postulants. He begins making friends. They all begin to bond together. There's a group of them that will begin to bond together um, to make it through this. Um, and you start to realize that it doesn't... The, the library knows about Jess. They know who he is. Uh, they know secrets about some of the others. And so this is an attempt to just get rid of a whole bunch of um, heretics at one time, including Scholar Wolf. They haven't been able to get rid of him before, again, like I said, because of his mother's high position, but they keep trying um, because they see him as trouble. So what we end up with in this book, we end up with um, a core group. Like I said, everything is seen through Jess's eyes, but then we also have Morgan Holt, who we find out uh, is what are called obscurists. Obscurists are the alchemists. They are the magic. They are the quintessence. They Their power is what powers the codex and... It's all alchemical symbols and mystery and magic, and Morgan is one of them. The problem is that obscurists are start, start to become more and more rare, and so the library decides that the best thing to do is to take all of the obscurists, put collars on them, golden collars on them, alchemically locked collars, toss them into what's called the Iron Tower, and that is where they live out their lives, and they are expected to have children with other obscurists in order to keep increasing the flow of obscurists into the library. So right there, we've got uh, the forced breeding. Uh, And Morgan discovers, they discover, her and a mentor discover early on that she's an obscurist. So she's in hiding there in the middle of everything because she intends to go into the library directly from, I guess, what you could call the mainframe. (laughs) She's going to hack the mainframe. Um, That's not the term that's used, but that's what I think of. She's going to go in and she's going to remove herself and all mention of her from the library archives and library records so that they don't know about her. So we've got her, we've got Jess, uh, we've got Glynbothan, who is Welsh. Uh, she was born to be a soldier. Whenever I picture her, I pr- picture Brienne of Tarth, actually. Um, she wants to be a soldier. That's all she ever wanted. 
technically, theoretically, her, she should be on, um, she should be, you know, at the throat of Jess and Morgan. They should be on opposite sides of this, you know, the Welsh and the English, but everybody bonds. And uh, there's Kalila Safe, who is uh, the, the lovely and an utterly intelligent uh, young Muslim woman. She wears a hijab, and she is very serious about her beliefs. Um, very smart, very loyal. She also kicks some major ass. Um, then we have Dario Santiago, uh, who turns out is a Spanish prince. He actually is Spanish nobility, lesser nobility, he'll tell you. But uh, he's kind of a douche face, too. Uh, he and Jess have a lot of conflict. But like I said, the stuff that happens tosses them all together. Um, there is Thomas Schreiber, the uh, wonderful German scholar. He's amazing. He's big and burly and blonde, and he's so sweet, and he is so brilliant, and he will be one of the other. He's the one that ends up driving the second book forward because Thomas invents a press, and then he is taken away at the end of the book. They come, He's taken away in the night. All they find is some blood. The press is gone, um, and so they, they, just, they decide, uh, Jess and Morgan and Glyne and Kalila and Dario, um, they are going to go get Thomas back. Now, in addition to this, we've got, as I mentioned, scholar Christopher Wolfe. Um, scholars, or Christopher Wolfe's mother is Kyria Morning. She is the obscurest Magnus. She is the highest of the obscurest, but she is also in the Iron Tower. She is allowed to come out, um, but not very often. She doesn't come out very often, and that's he is only alive because of her. Um, because when he was born, as he grew older, he didn't display any real obscure talent. So he was sent away to an orphanage at age 10. And so he has some uh, issues with his mom. And then we also have Niccolo Santi. Niccolo Santi is Wolf's uh, quote-unquote personal guard. He is a captain of the High Garda. Uh, he's very impressive. And he is Wolf's lover. Uh, Niccolo and Christopher are beautiful. <laughs> I'm getting a little teary now. They are wonderful. Um, I was more interested in their love story, actually, than I was in the one that starts to develop with Morgan and Jess. But, yeah, they're... So there's all of these people, all of these clashing personalities, and all of this shit that they have to go through to stay alive. So this is all ink and bone. This is everything that's happening in ink and bone. Um, the school, the, the archivist decides to send these postulants and Wolf and Santi into... Um, uh, England into an embattled Oxford to help clear out the library there because the Welsh forces are moving in and the whole town's about to be uh, uh, captured. The library is supposed to be neutral, so wars are supposed to kind of move around it and leave the libraries untouched. It doesn't always happen, and when the library or librarians are injured because of a war, um, the library takes quick action. And they do mention in some places where entire cities have been raised to the ground and are now forgotten because they struck out against the library. So the scholars go in, a whole bunch of them, or the, the postulants go in with Scholar Wolf. Uh, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of destruction. Um, they get out. They go back. Uh, and then at the end of Ink and Bone, um, Thomas is taken. And so that kind of drives the next. Uh, we end up finding out as we start paper ending Ink and Bone and start paper and fire that uh, Kalila has been given a gold band, a gold scholar's band, which means she's received a lifetime appointment to the library. Um, Dario is given, I think, a slightly lesser, so he is also a scholar as well. Thomas is missing. Morgan has been captured finally and locked in the Iron Tower with a gold collar around her neck. Uh, and Jess and Gline are now High Garda. Um, Jess has been given a one-year commission to the High Garda. Um, 
It's not what anybody expected. Everybody's a little surprised and upset. Jess didn't think he'd get, a, he'd get an appointment at all, but this is at least keeps him in the game. So Paper and Fire, um, they are looking for Thomas. They band together. They start searching. Um, now, through all of this, they're what are called automata. Um, they are the library's um, inhuman guards. They're everywhere. Every city has them. They can be in the shapes of lions. They can be in forms of human beings. It doesn't matter. They aren't real. They're driven by obscurest magic. They are deadly, and they have a tendency to be able to seek out smugglers. But what Jess ends up finding out as he's searching for Thomas and a way to free him is that they can be turned off. Clearly they have to be because they have to be maintained. So Jess, Jess figures out how to turn them off um, and which will help them too. Now he, they try to get to him. Finally, they're able to rescue Thomas. Um, they get him out, but in doing so we're, we're shown a lot about what happened to Scholar Wolf and it's, it's, it's horrible. Um, but the, everybody, they get him out, they get Thomas, they get him free. Now they're all on the run from the library. They, they go to London to Jess's family, but they end up getting sold out from under his father and taken off to Philadelphia. Um, oh, and Dario goes missing at this point. Um, it, when they're rescuing Thomas, Dario goes missing, and we think that Dario has proved to be the dick face we thought he was and that he... Um, that he betrayed them. He didn't betray them. He, they were holding Kalila's family, uh, so that's why he, he betrayed them, because of her. Because Kalila, as he says at one point when Jess asks him why he's doing something, he says, who is the one person whose orders I will uh, uh, unfailingly obey? Kalila. Dario is in love with Kalila. She is his desert flower, and he loves her more than anything in the world. So when he betrays them, it's because of her. Um, which, of course, she doesn't appreciate, but still, he did what he had to do. So they all get grabbed. Dario ends up coming back. Everybody gets grabbed. They go to London, or they're, they're transported over to Philadelphia, the Burner Haven, by smugglers. Um, Thomas is going to build the press for them so that he can get them out of there. Uh, Jess's brother, Brendan, shows up with high... Oh, and let me... I need to clarify how they're all traveling around so fast. <laughs> it's like Game of Thrones travel. It, it's super quick. It's, it's Skyrim fast travel time. Um, they're getting around so quick because they can... There are these things called translation chambers. It, it's it's not fun. Um, it's, it's really, really unpleasant. Um, they basically... Books can be translated. They put tags on them, and they can whoosh them off, the entire book off to the library. People can be translated, too, but it's described as a spray, like a, a whirl of bone... A whirlwind of bone and blood and screaming, and then they pop up where they've been sent so this is how everybody travels around so fast there's either the super fast um, library train which not everybody is allowed to use or the translation chamber is used a lot um, and whenever they're going through it uh, they learn from Santee whenever they're going through it they always say to each other or when they're going into something bad it's and um and Boco de Lupo in the mouth of the wolf um because it's it's <laughs> it's gnarly man it is gross so that's how they're moving around. So Jess is being held by burners in Philadelphia. And we learned that Benjamin Franklin was a burner, which I, I, I find amusing for some reason. Um, he did not like what was happening, and so Benjamin Franklin becomes a burner. Um, so they're in Philadelphia. <clears throat> they're building this this press. And Morgan, they, they, they're actually able to um, mock up a codex that she's able to enchant and Jess gets word to his brother and finds out that his brother's camped out with some other high Garda who have turned on the library, um, Santi's forces, 
and they're out there and they're going to rescue them. But what happens is Jess and his buddies are able to get out, and as they're getting out, the entire town is just laying waste, smoking rubble on instructions of the archivist who was hoping to keep them, in, who was hoping to catch them in there and kill all of them, and just. The burner town, Philadelphia, had been allowed to survive under siege for a long time, but this time they just decided to go ahead and destroy it because they wanted to get rid of this little band of uh, band of merry brigands. So they get out, <laughs> they go back a long sea voyage. They don't translate. They take a long sea voyage back to England to where his father is holed up in a fucking castle. Um, which is where apparently all of his money has been going all these years was shoring up this place. And they're held prisoner again because, again, his father, Callum Brightwell, dickface, horrible person. Um, but we find out his mother actually does care. Their mother does care because she uh, gives them some jewelry that they need. They need the stones to make another weapon. So, like I said, this is it's crazy. So much shit's going on. It's amazing. Um, but... Jess ends up trading places with his brother in order, because they find out his father is going to sell uh, Wolf and Morgan back to the library um, for his own means. Jess translate, Mor- translates Morgan and Wolf back to the library, translates himself. They think that he's Brendan. Um, he's undercover now. And um, I want to say I hate you, Rachel Kane. For that last ephemera in the book, from Wolf to Santi, I hate Rachel Kane so much for making me cry. Uh, because I listened to the audiobook and I cried like a baby when I listened to that. But I was pleased to see that there's another book coming. So that is the Great Library. It's crazy. It's insane. Um, we will take a little break. Um, I'm still feeling a little. A little funky, so we're gonna take a break. We are going to listen to some pro to a promo from a friend of mine, and we're going to listen to a lovely song, and then we will be back. A body falls past the window. Whatever. <laughs> and you put put it down, and you feel like shaky all over. Both your hands are covered. Wow. Immediately peg him as a cogman. So we've known each other for years. It's Sumeshi. One of the knives is missing from a garter hilt because it is being pressed to your throat. Damn. We had a. Oh, my God. Oh. So you took money from him, huh? We talked about this earlier. He was attacked by the forces of the American Confederation. <laughs> yeah. Are you constantly checking for traps? <laughs> the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast is available at rickstories.com or on iTunes. You can also get it at Stitcher and Google Play. Oh, 
friends that was burn the world by grand mall uh it is currently available on the free music archive and the links are in the show notes as usual now um i also wanted to clear up um the first part of this the introduction and most of or some of the first part was done yesterday morning when i was shortly before i decided that i needed to uh, turn myself inside out um so, Baby Stocking reached her home safely, and Mr. Stocking did return here safely as well. Um, so, everything's cool. Uh, Houston is still really, really gnarly. Um, it's bad. It's real bad. But North Texas came through pretty much unscathed. I think we got a little spatter and rain, and that was about it. So, on with the story. Um, the, the, obviously, the, the, the biggest issue that we deal with... Um, in this books, in this series of books, is uh, thought control through the control and the flow of knowledge, um, because the library makes the decision to become the arbiter and uh, storehouse of all knowledge in the world. They make this decision, and the world lets them make it. The world lets them rise to the top. They support them. They let them build their daughter libraries everywhere. Uh, they let them take control. They let them become the um, the rulers. You know, everyone is because everyone is still allowed to worship their own gods. Um, it's very similar to the Roman takeover of the world in some ways. I mean, people were still allowed to worship their own gods. They had their own monarchies. They had their own this and that. But if you wanted knowledge, you needed to get it through. You have to get it through the library, and that's just how it is. And not everybody believes that that's the way it should be. Um, and that is why books become the smuggled thing, the most important thing. The, you know, for someone like Jess who loves books so much, touching a, an original and, a, and a, a real, you know, ink on paper, the first edition of a book, a handwritten copy of a book, that is, that is the most amazing thing because those things, those things are not allowed. But why does the library get to decide that? Um, and <laughs> there is. A book that I've been reading, um, it is called Steampunk and 19th Century Digital Humanities, Literary Retrofutures, Media Archaeologies, and Alternate Histories. Uh, it's um, by Roger Whitson, and um, in that book, if you're familiar with Cory Doctorow, and you probably should be if you're not, um, everybody knows Cory Doctorow, 
And something he says in the book is that we have entered an era where the business models of technology and devices are about making it illegal for you to modify your technology. And we all know this, you know, it's called jailbreaking when you want to crack your iPhone so that you can do what you want with it. Um, Amazon can yank books off of your Kindle if they want to. Um, these things that we quote unquote buy, these things that we own, these digital, and I'm not, I'm not excusing myself. I mean, I, I have a vast Kindle library and an Audible library, and you know, I, I have movies that I own only in digital format. All of my music <laughs> is digital now. I don't own anything that's not. Um, but do we really own these things? And what if these books? that I read on my iPad if they're being subtly changed and new copies uploaded and I didn't know about it, you know, would we notice? So the things that we, and also, I mean, we can't, we've never been able to, things like um, recording music. That's always been illegal. We did it anyway all through the 80s. You remember sitting there listening to the radio and hitting play or hitting record to record your favorite song on the radio. You know, we all did it. We all knew how to put that little piece of paper into the tape and then later the VHS tape to, uh, so that you could record. You could, you know, record that, that show. So we all knew how to do it, but we're not supposed to. We, our technology makes, is supposed to make these things illegal. Um, and so, again, it, it, it's being controlled by a higher power, and why do we feel that that's right? Because up to the recent past, there, wasn't, there weren't copyrights. There weren't things like that. Everything was just kind of out there, free-floating. You could take it, you could do what you want, you could run with it. And then that information was was privatized. It was copyrighted. It was locked down. And I can see cons, I can see pros and cons to to all of this. Um, And also there's another quote in there that I felt that really kind of struck to the heart of this book. um, Is that human beings construct technology as a supplement to memorialize objects of love that are eventually lost. These technologies, furthermore, are part of a philological examination that has its basis in the priority of the material world to our conscious acts of reflection. Now, we have, especially with steampunk, the things that we create do memorialize um, objects of the past. We see it all the time. I mean, my, my iPad, I right now, I just got a new case for my iPad. It's a beautiful tooled leather cover, so it looks like a beautiful tooled leather book. It's not, but it looks old until you open it up, and it's my iPad. Um, the same with my computer. My With my Mac, I have a, a leather, lovely leather cover. It makes it look like a book. Um, we construct these things around our technology uh, to represent something from the past. I've seen, or even actually one article that I just read about... Music programs, computer music programs, like the Garage Band that I use, that looks like an old-timey... Why does it have buttons and knobs and dials in the program? It doesn't need it, but our brain wants it there. These old things, that these things that look the way that we think that they're supposed to look. Um, but again, they're all controlled. It's all thought control. We can't crack it. We can't change it. Um, we, we can change some of it, but we can't... The technology itself, we can change the casings and the covers, but we can't change the technology. We're, we're not supposed to be able to. We're not allowed to. And while we can create apps for the iPad and the iPhone and the Mac and the Windows, the actual technology itself, we're not supposed to, to do anything with. We're supposed to leave that alone. Um, and we've allowed this to happen. We've all taken these things in. Like I said, I mean, I, I'm just as bad as anybody. I'm not excusing myself in that matter. But we've taken these sleek, shiny, you know, 
streamlined objects to our hearts and we don't question it nearly enough. And that's not, I'm not saying that everybody's that way. There are people who question it. There are plenty of people who stay off the grid, if you will, as much as possible because they do question it. Um, but I think, I think it's some things are starting to be questioned more and more, especially with this current administration. Um, if, if you've heard the news now that, um, Sessions has been successful in getting a judge to agree to pressure DreamHost into revealing um, private user information so that they can ascertain who it was that was leading the protests against Trump in, uh, at the, I believe, in January at the inauguration. So even though we're supposed to have the right to protest, we've just, um, our attorney general, our, our, our tiny racist uh, attorney general has managed to pressure uh, an ISP into revealing information about people who don't like Trump. Why is that okay? How is that allowed? Protest is supposed to be one of our rights, and yet this has happened. Um, and we've all heard it in his speeches and in his, you know, going after the people who don't like him. And that's what it boils down to, the people that don't like him. He doesn't want people to not like I mean, yeah, I would think he would be used to it after a while. The man is horribly, horribly unlikable. Um, but we are venturing into thought control and the dreaded 1984 thought crime. Um, and we allowed this to happen and everyone can say, well, I didn't vote for him. He's not my president, but my demographic did overwhelmingly. Um, and that says something about where we are as a country that he did manage to to get himself in there and become president and now all of this is happening and we keep saying he can't he this can't happen and it's happening um and so how far behind is you know thought control and knowledge control i mean there was and i shared this on the uh, the dollhouse the steampunk dollhouse facebook page uh, a book burning that was supposed to take place in california uh, not last week but i think but the week before last but it ended up being stopped <laughs> so we're burning books we're physically burning books now one thing that i can say as far as and this is where the, the pro and con comes in because now that everything is digital it can be controlled but it also can't you can't burn it you can't ban a digital book you know, you can't, you can't, we all know how the internet works. You can never completely get rid of something. You can never erase something totally. So whereas you, you know, in, in decades and in centuries and, you know, millennia past, you could take this book and you could burn it and that was it. Nobody ever, you know, saw it again. You can't do that with digital work. Um, I have my books that I love and they are still floating around out there somewhere. Uh, they are still accessible. No matter what happens, I will still be able to get to them. And that is so vitally important. And so that, that, like I said, that forces us to decide what is more important. Is it more important that we have the free access to the information or, you know, and, and separate ourselves from the technology? Or do we try to make the technology um, do what we want it to do? And then again, who makes us the arbiters of that fate? Um, then the other issue that comes up in these books um, that is, is really important um, and we have seen echoes of it in, in actual history, as uh, the forced breeding program of the obscurists. Um, that's the... <laughs> and it, it's, hor- it's, it's horrific on the face of it, but um, if anyone, anyone who has studied American history at least a little bit, um, I'm not sure how much they... I can't remember how much they go to it. It's in the high school program, at least. I know we, we did talk about it in my college courses. Um, that there was slave breeding um, as part of slave ownership in the 
um, decade, you know, in the time prior to the Civil War, uh, that was just a part of what they did, that they wanted to breed the strongest, healthiest slaves that they could um, because that was, you know, definitely cheaper than, than buying new ones, just breed them. So they, this was sometimes um, loosely consensual, however you want to define that. Um, largely, um, they were let, most of them were let to do what they would do with those that they would do it with, but there was also coercion as well uh, between the male and females to promote um, pregnancy. And the, the female slaves who could produce the healthiest children, um, they were shown favor. <laughs> and then, um, like I said, this way they could fill labor shortages by just giving birth to them or raising them up and putting them out into the field. There was some selective breeding, uh, but that was, it was kind of rare. Um, mostly they were just sent out and told to do what they want to do. Now there was no marriage and not, we're not really, um, and the chances of these children being able to stay with their parents for any period of time were also not real good. Um, but that was one way to, to cut costs, was to grow your own. Um, something similar was done with the, the SS, um, you know, in, in Germany during World War II. That was called the Lebensborn, and I don't speak German, so sorry about that. Um, but it was a state-supported... Um, Association in Nazi Germany that uh, this was the idea that the purpose was to raise the the birth rate of the perfect Aryan children who were racially pure and healthy, uh, according to the Nazi um, ideology. And what the Lebensborn did, it provided um, sanctuary and welfare to these women who were mostly unmarried. Um, the birth was was you know it was preferred that it would be anonymous. Um, the children were born. They were immediately adopted out to uh, other racially pure parents, um, particularly SS members and their families. And then these women were given the cross of honor of the German mother. And this was given to the ones who bore the most Aryan children. Um, now, abortion was illegal. Um, so the Lebensborn, uh, from what I read, it did move into several occupied countries with German populations and it included selection of racially worthy orphans for adoption and care um, for children born from Aryan women who had been in relationships with SS members. Now, it excluded children, originally excluded children born from unions between common soldiers and foreign women because there was no proof of racial purity from either one. Um, and during the war, many children were kidnapped from their parents and judged by Aryan criteria for their suitability and um, fostering by German families. So... And this is just two of them within the last several hundred years. And this is something that's happened before. Um, You know, it's... And to a certain extent, I mean, we could see the same thing now with the cutting off of uh, women's health care. Can't have an abortion. (laughs) But we also can't get birth control. So you're going to have these babies. The only difference here is that None of the people who are so concerned about the welfare of these unborn babies want anything to do with them once they're actually born. Um, But, you know, what are you going to do with that? Now, one of the um, the other things that um, I noticed about this that has actually um, reminded me a lot of the Sherry Priest books, The the Clockwork Century that we did earlier uh, in the summer, the idea of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, and this also brings in uh, the burners as well. 
do is it better to okay the, the library controls everything right so is it better to destroy the library to protect the knowledge that the library is suppressing in the name of protecting that knowledge the library has everything the library even the things that have been suppressed like i said they're interdicted to the black archive now in the course of the book the black archive is actually destroyed um and the artifacts magnus blames jess and his cohort um for making him do that oh and that's the other thing i wanted to explain um the actual control of the library the library is controlled by the archivist magister i think i can't remember sorry my brain's still locked up uh, he is the one in charge now the obscurists are run by the uh the obscurist magnus uh, the Artifacts Magnus is basically the archivist's bully boy. Um, he's the one that I think that, that Thomas would have reported to, essentially, um, the creator of object, uh, you know, devices and objects. Um, but he does the archivist's bidding. And the archivist wears a crown and has a throne and all of that good stuff. He is a king of his own world. He's the king of this library world. And so is it... And is it right to... Because even the library, even though the library interdicts these things and calls them heresies, they, they weren't getting rid of them initially. They destroyed the devices, but they kept the instructions. They kept the drawings. They kept the the ways to create them. They put this all in the Black Archive. Everything. They didn't destroy any actual knowledge. They kept it uh, until Jess and his friends broke into the Black Archive, and that's when the artifacts destroyed it. Um, so is it... Are, are the burners right um, is it better to destroy the knowledge than to be controlled by it? You know, once it reaches this level, um, because we know that the library is keeping something from us, we know that the library is, is taking a lot of things away. And you know, over the years, the hundreds and hundreds of years that these that human nature comes up with a better way. Because Thomas isn't trying to be a heretic; he has no idea that it's wrong. He doesn't know because the library has kept all this so secret. He's just so happy that he's creating this device that will make it so much easier to read and to copy things because everybody knows that the obscurists are becoming more and more rare. Um, and so Thomas wants to create something that they won't have to rely on the obscurists anymore. He's so excited and he's so sweet and he's so kind. And he's, he's you know, he thinks he's done something wonderful and, and he's tossed in prison and tortured for months and months and months and months and months and he is almost broken when they finally get him out um and he is affected he he does have lasting damage because of what they did to him because he wanted to do something good um so who's you know and has this happened before i mean what other things have been created and hidden away from us? Um, and I know I, I read a lot of conspiracy theory books, and so I think the government's hiding a lot of shit from us, um, which actually, I don't know, with this president, we may not have to worry about that for too much longer. He's so fucking stupid that he's going to reveal all the secrets eventually. Um, but is it that that's the question for you guys. Um, is it better to destroy it? than to allow the library to control us with it. Obviously, this is a fictional fictional idea, but should we allow ourselves to be controlled by these devices? Because, you know, we can open up our iPads and pull up something anywhere in the world and, you know, have the information right there at our fingertips. But it's information that's been curated by a, a greater, a larger faceless group who has decided what is best for us to see. 
and why have they decided that for us? And why have we allowed them to decide that for us? That is the question for you. And there's one quote um, that she includes in this I really love. Now, it's obviously, it's not going to be real. Um, this didn't really happen, but it's supposed to be from Callimachus, um, the first archivist, I believe is what it said. Um, it's one of the ephemera that she includes, but I, I like it, and I think it kind of... It's important, and it says, It is a terrible arrogance to think that there are any of humankind who are better or worse, or worthy, or not. It comes of a pitiful need to believe in one's own worth when one is hollow within. We are all worthy, and none of us are. All at once. Once that is acknowledged, that hollow, howling space may be filled with understanding. But so many cling to their emptiness, and I fear that they may yet prevail. So... Sorry. It strikes to the heart of so much that is happening now um, and so much of the fighting and so much of the anger and so much of the hate and things that we see now is that we have decided that there are some who are better and some who are worse. Um, We won't let refugees into this country or we're trying to restrict the refugees into this country because we think that some of them are better and some of them are worse. If they are Christian, then they are better and we'll let them in. If they are Muslim, then they have to be worse. They can't possibly be good and we don't want to let them in. Even though our Statue of Liberty says that this is where they should be, we don't want to let them because we have decided. Our government has decided. Governments are deciding who is worthy and who is better and who should have the information and who should not. And we are all worthy of this knowledge, and none of us are worthy of this knowledge. These technologies that we've created that we don't understand... We aren't worthy because we don't understand them, but we are worthy because we created them. <laughs> you know, it's that paradox. And we are allowing our elected officials uh, to tell us what we can have and what we can read and what we can understand and the freedoms that we're supposed to have. We're allow- we, And this, this has always been this way. I mean, this isn't new. This was, you know, McCarthyism. And after 9-11, with Homeland Security, and we allowed these things to be taken away because we were so fucking scared. And now things like Fox News have people, people that I love, so scared and so terrified that they have made judgments about who deserves help and who deserves a hand up and who doesn't. And everyone deserves help. Everyone deserves kindness. I don't believe that anyone comes into this world completely and purely evil. I think I've said this before. There are some toys that come out of the factory broken, and that's there's no way around that. But by and large, we are all born with a great capacity for good or evil. It just depends on our experiences in life, and it depends on what we're given access to and the knowledge that we're given access to and the way that knowledge is presented to us as a gift or a privilege or a right or an obligation. We all should have the same chances, but we don't. And so we should all work to ensure that everyone has those same chances, but we don't. And when we don't, things like the great library in this book come in to fill the void and are seen as a shining beacon, um, much like America wants itself to be seen across the world. You know, we kick in the doors of other countries and tell them to, to cut the shit. But is that our place? You know, we can't we can't feed all of our own people, but we want to tell the the rest of the world how to how to take care of their shit, and that's not right. 
So while I think that something like the Great Library um, couldn't happen, I'd like to think it couldn't happen, but the more and more that we begin to rely on our technologies, the more that we plug in, the more that we stream, um, the more that we no longer physically own, and we allow the technologies, and we allow the Amazon, and iTunes, and Windows, you know, we allow them to to dictate to us what we can have. Um, and the more we have them, you know, we allow them to tell us, well, you don't need this physically anymore. Here, it's conveniently streamed for you. And we say, okay. We give up more and more rights. But I, I, I don't know. That's one of those questions I don't know how to answer yet. Um, because I'm as much a slave to these things as anybody. I don't know how to... I don't know how to solve that paradox yet. Uh, maybe maybe you guys have an idea. Maybe you guys have an answer. Is it as simple as unplugging completely and, you know, never turning back on? Um, or is it, you know, as complex as diving in completely? <laughs> I don't know. Um, find me. Find me on Facebook. Find me on Twitter. Talk to me about it because um, I don't know. Uh, but I, what I do know is that these are, are really good books. Uh, like I said, now, these are a little to the edge, to the, to the pulpier side than what I usually do, but they're really well written. Rachel Kane did a really good job. Um, there's some romance, but it's not over the top. Um, it fits. It works, especially given Morgan and Jess's situations, Morgan's situation especially, and what she has to go through and what's going to be done to her. Um, so I, I highly recommend them. Um, and again, there's there's supposed to be more. I'm, I'm really excited about that. There's going to be more after this. So look them up. The The links are in the, the show notes. Um, the Great Library Series by Rachel Kane. Um Ink and Bone, Paper and Fire, and Ash and Quill. Um, and as I said, the, the audibles are, are really good. They did make me, the, the last one did make me cry. So uh, thank you guys. Um, and look them up, give them a read, and let me know what you think about all of this. And also, I uh, just wanted to apologize again um, if I'm rambling a little more than usual. Um, I'm feeling a little bit better. Uh, the migraine was was pretty gnarly. Um, I'm on an upswing right now, so I'm feeling a little better. But what always happens is I get kind of giddy. So if this episode was a little weirder than usual, that's why. <laughs> um, I'll be back to my normal self um, in time for the next one. But, you know, I, I appreciate you guys tuning in always. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen... You can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion matters, and it has an impact on how many people can find us. We'd also like to add a very special thank you to young Ms. Sally, the most badass and adorable war boy that's ever been witnessed. If you would like to contribute your vocal tones to our intro, we would really like that, and it's super easy. You just need the voice recorder on your smartphone and can-do attitude. Please email me at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com with the subject line intro offer, and I'll send you the script and instructions. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for The Chimney Sweeps Are Revolting, or Why One Should Never Underestimate a Girl from the Drowning, with A.J. Hartley's Alternative Detective series. is a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. 
Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who, unlike the sun, is never eclipsed by anything. But like the sun, you shouldn't stare at her too long. Seriously, it's weird. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Singin' Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs and all other episode music can be found at freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, choose to see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Being overrun by book burners and golf playing demagogues? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at spdhpod. Want to help keep the library generators fueled? Visit our support page at spdhpod.com. Any contributions you can give will be amazing and sincerely appreciated and will enable us to begin making kick-ass Bunker Buster merchandise as soon as possible. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking out. Fewer rooftops, thumper 